Welcome to Taken Off the Ritz, Episode 6. I'm Dan Garman. When we engage with art or entertainment, we are often the most impacted by honest, vulnerable, raw expression through an artist's chosen medium. These types of expression resonate with us long after the end credits roll or the needle falls off of the record. We give industry professionals across all art and entertainment fields awards for their depth and their commitment to communicating essential, vulnerable, human, important messages through their art. Yet, when not actively engaged in the artistic process, it's a lot harder to find that level of honesty and vulnerability in the industry. People routinely backstab or ghost others in the pursuit of their self-interests. A lot of people can smile at their peers or their rivals while harboring terrible feelings or resentments toward them. There's such a painful irony in being asked to give genuine, soul-bearing performances in a rehearsal or performance scenario, while all the while being completely unable to live a professional life in an honest and vulnerable way. And yet, thankfully, there are examples of those who are able to do both and so much more. And many times, those are the very people who are able to move us the most. Somehow, these people are able to tune out the noise of the industry, channel what is true in their hearts or screaming out as necessary to communicate from their souls and selflessly release this work into the world, resonating with hundreds, thousands, or millions of people in the process against all odds. Today's guest is one of those people. Jen Bostic is an award-winning Nashville-based singer-songwriter who has performed sold-out tours across the U.S. and Europe, including performances at the Grand Ole Opry, Lincoln Center, BBC Breakfast Television, and many, many others. She was twice named International Touring Artist of the Year by the British Country Music Association and was the first international artist to have her first three singles playlisted on BBC Radio 2. Her life story is inspiring, to say the least. She and I had an incredible conversation that I am so honored to share with you. Please welcome Jen Bostic to Taken Off the Ritz. All right, I am here with the one and only Jen Bostic. It is so good to see you. It has been forever. Uh, how are you doing? I'm well. It's so good to see you. It has been forever. Like you were just a child when I saw you last, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah. I think we ran into each other once, like when I was a medium child. I think my friends and I did stop by Nashville and try to get an authentic Nashville experience. And that was before (laughs) Nashville. That was when Nashville was still kind of like growing. It hadn't even become what it's become now. I'm so excited to hear just about the city and about your life. Uh, and just about how everything is. So, I mean, first of all, do you want to just give a little background on like what you've been up to and what you do and just kind of an overall introduction for for the people to to get a sense of who you are? 
Of course. Yeah. I am a singer songwriter, like you said, based in Nashville, grew up in small town, Minnesota and found my way to Berkeley college of music to study music education. I had had some, uh, unfortunate events happen in my childhood that music kind of became the outlet for as a therapy for me, songwriting became a therapy. And I just really felt like if I could help, you know, students find that same outlet, that that would be a really rewarding career. And so I went on to study music education, met you during my student teaching. I know, that is the connection. It's <laughs> <just> crazy. <laughs> um, and you literally saved me because with your perfect pitch and your incredible piano playing, like I wouldn't I have gotten through remember that semester this. without you. So I'm oh so thankful. Um, I actually have told that story many times. You've come up in that way of like, there was this student who was an incredible pianist and incredible incredible no like way. Pitch. oh for sure for sure so um as i was graduating finished up that student teaching everything in my heart said go to nashville if you don't make a record you're going to regret it you know so that was just kind of the the heart behind that i did i moved to nashville i trusted that instinct and made a record shortly after moving there and i've made five more since and it's just been a crazy whirlwind um I've been signed. I've been unsigned. I, you know all the different things. So yes. it's been a fun, fun road that I'm on. I'm a new mom now, so navigating motherhood as well is is part of the game now. So it's it's just been a fun. I'm really grateful. I've had a lot of incredible opportunities to travel internationally, and yeah, that's kind of where I'm now. Is that a good synopsis? <laughs> I, that is honestly the most concise perfect synopsis. I feel like every time I try to do a synopsis with people, it takes like the entire episode. We were like, oh, we'll just do a synopsis. And then it's the entire episode is just us going systematically through people's lives. So I think that was absolutely perfect. And I think that's a really good overview. Um, So, I mean, I definitely, I think an interesting thing, an interesting place to start would be with, from the outset, you going to music school, especially, you know, coming from a place that was smaller town, going to Boston, going to Berkeley School of Music for education, and just what the overall process was. Because I, I think, um, and actually, if you want to talk a little bit about, about why you chose education and that story, I mean, I think that story is really beautiful and important and informs so much of what you do. Um, but yeah, if you want to just give us kind of the transition from that to education and then to becoming a performer... Uh, just to better understand your background, and then maybe we can talk about um, what some of those things in that transition entailed, because I'm sure that was, you know, not an overnight switch from from education to performing. So yeah, absolutely. So uh, growing up, like we said, small town Minnesota, and I unfortunately lost my dad in a car accident when I was ten, and he was really the first person to kind of call the musical gifting out of me and get me excited Mm -hmm. about music. He was always putting an instrument in my hands, you know, whether I knew how to play it or not, just to hold it and feel it. And started piano lessons really young, was a terrible student because I never practiced. (laughs) But um, (laughs) after losing my dad, it felt like music was the one way I could still connect to him somehow. And so sitting at the piano just felt like a way I could sit down with him. And so I kind of organically started writing these songs, things I couldn't talk about would somehow find their way out in melodies and lyrics. And that feeling is just something I continued to chase. It was just a beautiful outlet for me, therapy for me. And so, like I said, it I felt like if if I could help somebody else find that feeling, then I wanted to do that. And 
I was ready to get out of my small town. You know, I visited yes. New York City many times and I had just seen a lot of the world with my parents, which I was really thankful for. And I thought, you know, I want to go somewhere. I want to go to some big city. And uh, Berkeley had this music education program. And when I was touring schools, Berkeley just kind of felt like this place where they would draw the this, your strengths, your personal strengths out of you and help you become, you know, the educator that you were called to be rather than let's make you a carbon copy of, you know, who our, our music education professor is. And so I loved that about it. I loved that it was in right in the middle of Boston, you know, so I, I went off to college and I think there was always a deep desire to perform in me. And I don't know that I had the confidence to really step out in the world and say, I'm going to go be a performer. But deep down, it was Mm -hmm. always the dream, you know? And I was, you know, big fish, small pond. And then all of a sudden, small fish, big pond. (laughs) When I moved to Boston, as we all experience. And I just started kind of performing here and there. I was in a cover band on the weekends and then did the Berkeley Singer Showcase and things like that and started to slowly gain this confidence and all the while studying music music education and loving it. And then, you know, when I came to your high school and got to do some student teaching, I kind of saw what my life would look like if I chose that path and really just prayed through it and kind of thought, okay, like, this would be a beautiful thing and I would love to to be a teacher and maybe that's my path somewhere down the line. But in uh-huh. this moment, my heart is beating to go make an album in Nashville, whatever that looks like. And so I followed that little feeling and didn't really know what I was doing, but at the same time did because, you know, you're studying at school for four years and in the back of your mind, it's always like, well, it'd be cool to perform. It'd be cool to perform. And then made a couple calls when I was ready to move to Nashville. And one of those was to a guy named Charlie Hutto, who ended up producing my first album. He was interning at Starstruck Studios, Rebo McIntyre Studio. Oh my and God. we had a chance to record my first album with session musicians there. I, of course, emailed him like with all the confidence being like, here are the songs. And he very kindly, he was like a big brother to me, but he was very kindly like, these are not the songs we need to write (laughs) some more, which was such a gift because we spent the next man. Once I moved to Nashville, probably six, six to nine months writing two or three times a week. And when we finally had 12 songs that were kind of worthy of investing in, that's when we went into the studio at Starstruck and recorded with just world-class players. And it was, it was like my, a master's degree just to be in there recording, you know, like I feel like I learned so much about the industry and creating an album and what that looks like. And so that was yeah. my first album. It's called Keep Looking for Love. It's a pop country album because I thought I was going to be the next Carrie Underwood. And um, <laughs> I I wanted to tour when it was over. I wanted to go on tour. And uh, no one was knocking down my door to put me on a tour of, yes. you know, the country yes. original music. And so I just started making phone calls, started sending cold emails and just mainly to regions that I knew I had couches or guest rooms to crash in. And that was the beginning of my touring experience. Uh, The first tour I did uh, was with a friend and we ended up somehow going in the green, which was kind of, it lit that fire to, okay, let's do more of this. And like, essentially that's kind of still what I'm doing. You know, I I do have help now, which is wonderful, but it's, that's what I do. You know, I Uh, record albums and tour them and I do still tap into the education part of it with some songwriting workshops and things like that, but that is amazing. I guess so. Okay, so that is that is. 
I what what a cool trajectory, and it sounds like there was always a real um, sense of you looking inward to find what what actually spoke to you. I, I I think just to rewind a little, so just from a career standpoint, because I think it's really interesting. I think there is I've spoke to pe- spoken to people who have actually kind of the reverse even of what you're describing, where they've grown up steeped in performance, and they're like, I think I want to go. Uh, and be a performer and be someone who's doing this and try to make that living regardless of what parents or friends or people say about, oh, you know, uh, it's going to be tough to make it. I mean, even people people for sure told me that too. Um, and I guess when you were wrestling with those things, um, in terms of you're taking, on the one hand, education provides us hypothetically a steady salary, and a feeling of okay, like if I follow this path, I'm I'm gonna at least have some variables that are knowns. I mean, I guess the first question is when you decided to go the performance route, did you have enough confidence, or did you have enough you know means behind you that you could make that decision, or were there scary times where you were like busting your ass working cover bands to just make rent? Like, I guess that's the first question is giving up, being able to give up that career feels like, feels scary. So what, what was that like? Yeah, it definitely scary. And I am absolutely a control freak. So for me to be a, like a freelancer is pretty, pretty crazy. But, um, I, you know, like I said, I was in some pretty great shows at Berkeley and I think just kind of building that confidence and being like, oh wow, like I was chosen for this show. I got a chance to sing on this big stage. Like maybe these are all signs that like I'm I'm headed in the right direction. And my faith has always mm-hmm. been a huge, huge importance to me, you know. So I like I said, really prayed about it and I felt this peace, just that, you know what? Like life is so short. And I saw that with my dad. My mom has kind of instilled that in me too, is like, do what you really love. Because my dad always said, you know, when he retired, he was going to make an album because he was very musical Mm. himself and he never got the opportunities. So I think when my mom saw that both my brother and I were interested in music, it was kind of just encouraged to go do it. Don't don't wait until you're, you know, retired to do this. And so I did have that voice in my mind all the time. And my mom definitely was such a supporter, both emotionally and did help with the the financial means of my first album, which I'm so, so thankful for. And albums after that were helped out by things like uh, Pledge Music and various uh, crowdfunding as well. So there's, I've definitely had financial help in that way. Uh, but who have I had my fair share of? <laughs> Of jobs to get me through. Um, yeah. I was a line dance instructor for a little while. I oh did some substitute teaching. I I would sing, I mean, anywhere that anyone would let me. And, you know, whether that was for tips or for actual payment or whatever it was. But I just, I was singing nonstop. And I feel like I was trying to consistently just increase my chances of luck. Because as we know, like, you got to put yourself out there in this business. And I think... I would say that about the beginning of it. And then I think you come to a season of life where you have to say, okay, like, what is my value? What is my worth? Like, I, I need to, I need to learn how to say no and not that everything is like, if I don't do this thing, then this might not happen or I might not like go get where I'm supposed to be going. I really feel like we're, 
we're all going to get where we're going and having that, that balance. And of course, now that I have a family, you know, fi- just putting my priorities in the right order has been something I've continued to learn over the last probably five years or so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I think that th- of everything, I think talking about what it's like. So now that you have, you know, you're established and I want to go back to especially like you've had some interesting success in terms of there well I we can go here. I mean, there was something about the UK, right? I do remember yeah. hearing about and reading about. So your music, first of all, I your music is incredible. And Thank like you. I just need to say that that you can feel how much soul and spirit and how you can feel that that same feeling you're describing about you know when you originally got into it that that comes through in your music and that connection to something kind of greater and that that is very apparent hmm. but you know there was a quote there was a quote that um I read somewhere and maybe you had even mentioned at one point that the, that ironically with the way that the music business works here in the states especially Nashville especially we're talking about talking about country music. We're talking about, uh, and that your music somehow, I read that it was like two, two country for pop, two pop for country, which is such a shitty thing to say. (laughs) Um, but it's interesting because it really kind of points to the music industry and the way that things need to somehow need to be cataloged. Um, and that, but that in the UK that you were received differently. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about just, what what you've done versus the way it's been received, both like emotionally and kind of as a as a business, just in terms of how that affects you. Absolutely. I would love to. So I mentioned the first album, Keep Looking for Love. I admittedly was trying to write songs that I thought the radio would want to hear on that album. And I had a mm. blast doing it, you know, and I learned a lot doing it. And I feel like I learned a lot about how to write a song doing that album and also being in a cover band singing hit after hit after hit every weekend. Um, But after that album, uh, I had some label meetings and one was with a label that we will not name, but (laughs) that is the head of the label listened to about five of my songs from that album. And he kind of said, I don't, I don't get you. Like you're too pop for country. You're too country for pop. Like there's too much faith for pop, like whatever it was, there were a lot of different, things that he said. And I was, of course, in my like 20 something, just, I was crushed, right? My little heart was just destroyed because I was going to get a record deal and be the next Carrie Underwood after that uh, meeting, you know, that's all it was going to take. And so I went home and sat at my piano and just kind of remembered like why I started doing this in the first place. And I think the first song I wrote for that second album is a song called Change. And it opens with a Judy Garland quote, uh, never be a second rate version of somebody else. And it was that was kind of the theme of the album for me. Like I knew that I wanted to just write from my heart and, you know, not care about the labels as much as you cannot care about the labels being an artist, you know. Exactly. And so I, I started writing from that place. And one of the songs that was written for that album is a song called Jealous of the Angels that I wrote with two gentlemen, Jimmy Fortune and Zach Runquist. And it was a song that said everything I needed to say about what happened with my dad. And I had kind of written a few songs about him uh, before that, but they only scratched the surface. And this one just kind of even when we wrote it, it felt like this weight lifted off my shoulders that I didn't even realize I was carrying. Like it just felt like I needed to write that song. 
Never yes. was I going to perform it in public. Never, ever. It was a song, you know, that was too personal, too specific, all of those things. Then I was at the Bluebird Cafe and it, I was in a songwriter's circle getting ready to play. And it was almost my turn to play a song. And everything in my heart said, play that song about your dad. And I had just written it, you know, barely got through it. Woman came up to me after the show and she said, I lost my dad two days ago. And I know you played that song for me tonight. Oh, and it was one of those music moments, one of those life moments that you just, you know that that happened for a reason. And something in my heart shifted. And I felt like if the worst experience of, that I'd had walked through could somehow have brought a song into the world that could bring even one person comfort and help them know they're not alone in their grief, that I had a responsibility to share it. And I recorded the song with a guy named Barrett Yorotsian out in Los Angeles. I filmed a music video for it in my hometown of Waconia, Minnesota at my dad's gravesite. And I just put the song on YouTube. You know, there wasn't like a whole big plan behind it. I just put it on YouTube. And I like to remind specifically like artists and songwriters that it did not happen overnight. Like the song went up and it wasn't a week later, a month later, it was six months later that all of a sudden randomly some radio station in England started playing it. Somebody had found the song and had resonated with it on that, you know, level of grief and sent it to the station with a story of how they lost their dad and the station played it. And I found out on Twitter that it was even happening. And yeah. And, uh, the next thing I know their phones are lighting up after the first play, they're reaching out saying, Hey, we want to do an interview. I go into some, little studio in Nashville. It's 3 a.m. in Nashville because it's 9 a.m. in London. And I'm doing like my first ever big radio interview and playing the song live. Three weeks after I saw that tweet that my song was played, I was on an airplane flying to London and I had a chance to perform the song on BBC Breakfast Television. And that day it went number one. It was crazy. It was like all of these things right at once. BBC Radio 2, which is the most listened to radio station in Europe, playlisted it, heavy rotation. Like it was, everything happened so fast. And, you know, it's like overnight success that I had been working on for, you know, many, many years as those stories usually go. But the icing on the cake is I returned to Nashville and was invited to debut it at the Grand Ole Opry, which was a huge bucket list for me. And so I've gotten to play it at both the Ryman and the Opry House for various Opry shows. And it's been now the song has been covered by countless artists, specifically in Europe. But there was just some some connection with that first play in Europe that kind of helped it move along. And there's a beautiful artist named Donna Taggart, who is from Ireland, who has taken the song to, I mean, I think her version has like 60 million hits now. No it's it's way. crazy. Yeah. And then another um, <laughs> classical artist uh, from London named Catherine Jenkins. She also did a version of it that has, she sung it at Royal Albert Hall and, you know, just places that like you only dream oh. about your songs being in. So I'm very grateful I really believe songs are given to us. And I feel like this song is so much bigger than anything I could like even begin to take credit for, but I'm so grateful I get to share it. And, you know, it's now a song that I'll never not sing in a set. You know, it's, it's part of, I've seen it help too many people. And that kind of goes back to my, the origin of, you know, why I even wanted to be a teacher was to help other people and like help people find an outlet through music. And it's been really sweet to see that happen a roundabout way through performing and sharing my story and sharing these songs. And 
seeing people connect in a way that, you know, I was hoping to almost connect in a classroom because that's the only way I could see it. But now I see it from a totally different perspective. And I'm just incredibly grateful that it's still a huge dream come true and in a very different, but, you know, for me personally, even more fulfilling way. Wow. That is such an unbelievable story. And I'm so glad. I mean, it's really telling that the moment you were willing to share that deep, authentic self through your song, that like it just resonated through the world. I mean, that is really like a lesson that I'm, I just need to sit with because mm. I think we all search for that. And I think if you chase the, you could have never, had you been chasing oh, that no. reception, it wouldn't have happened because mm-hmm. you're chasing the thing and there's no substance. But it was like precisely because it was so beautiful and personal and resonated with so many people authentically and spiritually that it had that reception. I have a follow up question, yeah. which is, so I think about that moment a lot, right? Because that's a moment of success. And, you know, it's a moment, oh, you know, I have a friend, oh, you win the Grammy, you got the Tony, you did the thing. I think it's a little bit different for you because it achieved success and it was like always very grounded and very genuine from what I hear. It wasn't just like, oh, I want a Tony by, you know, whatever, whatever vehicle gets me to the award, it doesn't matter. I just want my voice to achieve an award, right? So I, I think we can all, it's obvious that that's not the deal, but it's the same as like, you know, your favorite band or your favorite rapper, like, once they get money or success, it's there's a different challenge of where do you go from there? Because, you know, I, I guess I'm interested in hearing what your experience since achieving that has been. Is there a part where you're like, I'm I am hoping that something new resonates the same way? Uh, because there's so many, like, yeah, especially with rappers, it's like the moment you have money, it's like there's nothing to rap out of anymore. There's no, there's no struggle anymore, right? The, 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 the authenticity that brought you there, it's kind of the artist conundrum, which I feel like is why, like, you know, the Kurt Cobains of the world, like, couldn't handle it. There's a lot of people who just can't handle it, and you never imagine that's going to happen. So, what is it like to continue forward career wise? Because you're not just going to always play that one song, even if you included it on your sets, and it still brings a lot of healing to the world. Like, what is the experience of trying to move forward from that like? That's a great question. So after the success of that song, I definitely struggled with, well, I'm never going to write a song that good again. So like, now what? You know, like there's definitely <laughs> yeah. that those thoughts. Yeah. And I was very fortunate that uh, as soon as the success with Jealous of the Angels had happened, I was working with a man named Jay Frank, who has unfortunately since passed away, but he was just such a champion of mine. And I am so grateful to him. He he was very strategic and just knew, you know, what to do next. And so honestly, my Jealous album, which is my s- sophomore album, I was an EP that was six songs, which was f- five fully produced. And then one that I just happened to be in the studio and played and recorded. And after we got the acoustic version, we were kind of like, let's throw that on there is, which is a song called snowstorm. And so mm-hmm. we had these five, six songs uh, on this EP already that was out with jealous of the angels. And then all the success started to happen really quickly. And I was, you know, getting invited on for certain shows and tours and, like I didn't have a full album of this song. So yeah. However, Jay had been he we had kind of had a publishing deal happening and so I was writing consistently and I had a, you know a handful of songs some of which he had had me demo to be pitching to bigger artists. 
And so we took some of those demos and just enhanced them a little bit. And that's my second album. Like so many songs I love, you know, but it was like, we got to get this done fast, you know? And that's probably the album that I've had the most success with, which is just so funny that that's the way it happened. But on that album was a song I wrote with Barry Eretzian, who produced Jealous the Angels, but he and I wrote a song called Not Yet. And that was the follow-up single in the UK. We kind of did a radio promotion over there because it was hitting. And that song ended up um, on what's called the BBC Radio 2 A-list. And Jealous the Angels had only ever hit the B-list. So this song actually outplayed that song at radio. And then we followed it. And it's a song about not giving up on your dreams. And it's a very big vocal anthem and we followed it up with a song called Missing a Man, which ended up on the C playlist. So, you know, it still to be on the playlist was a huge deal. And, you know, especially for an unsigned artist. So I was really grateful to see that continued success with the songs that we had on the second album. But then the third album, that's when your mind starts to play tricks on you. And at that point, you know, I had this publisher and I had a manager and we had this success in Europe and now they're using that as ammo, you know, to like, who can we write with? Who can we, what, who can we have produced this track, which is awesome. And like an indie artist trying to figure out, you know, who they are in the music space. That's the dream to have all these producers wanting to work with you and all of these songwriters that you get to work with. So I was working with, you know, people that had produced the last Ed Sheeran track and the one last one direction track and all of these things. And, I was, all the songs started to sound like me and whoever their last hit was with, right? Because Mm. I was then in these rooms with monster talent and I'm just like shrinking back being like, I don't belong here. You know, like total imposter syndrome, Uh. getting lost, trusting anytime, you know, there was an idea that I was like, well, maybe I was like, no, they know what they're doing, you know? So I kind of got a little bit lost, but in those relationships, the, the biggest gift is that I had a chance to write with a woman named Lauren Christie. Uh, she is, she was part of the Matrix, um, who are responsible for so many of the pop hits that we all know. Specifically, when I was growing up in like at the high school era, so uh, complicated and Skater Boy for Avril Lavigne uh, wrote some Christina stuff, some Britney stuff. She wrote Remedy with Jason Mraz. So, I mean, monster, like just incredible. And when we met, uh, it was very clear that our first meeting was just to be a half an hour coffee for me to pick her brain. Like this was not a writing session. You know, she had two girls that she was raising. She was only writing three days a week. I was still unsigned at this point. So it was kind of like, I'll meet with her, you know, if we hit it off, great, but there were no promises. And it was definitely not to be a writing session. And my manager and publisher at the time, you know, of course they wanted her to want to work with me. So there was this like underlying pressure that I felt going into it. And on my way to her house, I just remember thinking, I like, I can't make her like me. And I was like, okay, Lord, if this is supposed to happen, like open the door, if it's not just close it. I, I can't, you know, go in there not being authentic because then it's definitely not going to work out. So five minutes into our coffee, she asked me if I had any song ideas. And one thing I've learned about sessions is always have a song idea in your back pocket. And we ended up writing two songs that day. She shared her entire testimony of faith with me. She had just become a Christian three years earlier. So of course we had that in common and had so much to talk about. We had so many parallels in our lives and it was, it was just this instant sisterhood that was born. And 
every time I would come to Los Angeles after that, she lives in LA. Every time I would fly out there, I would just send her a quick email and be like, hey, I'm coming out. Do you have time to write? And she would always make time in her schedule for me. And this was, we met 2014. And she she and I wrote five of the songs, I think, on my third album. But it was always just me still, you know, owning my masters and doing all all the production and stuff. We would just write and then I'd take the songs away. And we had one song on my album, uh, my revival album, which was kind of fast forwarding after that album that we talked about where I kind of got lost. I came to a breaking point of, okay, if we continue down this path, I'm for sure getting lost. And it it started to sound really pop, which I've always had a lot more kind of soul in me. And I felt like I was having to kind of drift away from that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I amicably amicably parted ways with my team and decided to just venture out completely independent, which is really scary, (laughs) but I did it. And um, I ended up recording an album at House of Blues here in Nashville with like my best friends and Paul Salveson, who was the creative director at my church at the time, produced it. And it was like the best time in the studio ever. Um, so that was my fourth album, which one of the songs on that, that record I had written with Lauren, it's a song called Lamp. And as I was promoting that album, doing everything I could to get it out in the world and watching my bank account plummet, I was like, oh my goodness, what's next? And it was really, honestly, even four albums in, kind of a a point of like, all right, am I still supposed to do music? Like, is this still what I'm supposed to do? Like, I do have this teaching degree that I would love to use someday. You know, maybe there's something else for me. I don't know. And Lauren called me about a week after I had that like come to Jesus moment and she called me out of the blue and she said, Hey, I've had all this success in the pop world and I really just want to do an album that honors God. And every time I pray about it, he puts you on my heart. And so would you just pray Mm. about doing an album together and my husband and I will finance it. You and I will write all the songs together. Like, what do you think? And it was for sure a prayer I'd already prayed. And so I, of course, accepted. And the two of us got to work together on a full-length album. Uh, She and I sing one duet on it, but the rest of it is, yeah, a Jen Bostic album. And it's a contemporary Christian record. And it has just been a really sweet journey with that one. We started the process back in like 2019, and it finally came out in 2022, um, but I met the one of the guys that produced it with her is named Ben Hurd, and he and I have continued to work together. We have a duet out called Pray You Away. And it it's just been incredible to work with Lauren. We worked with Nephew, um, Theron Feemster, who he worked with Michael Jackson and like all of these incredible Whoa. people. Yeah. So it just it's been one of those and in that same space, there was a a connection with Lauren. So it wasn't like me being thrown into a room with like people that I don't think necessarily trust my voice, even though I'm the artist in the room, it -hmm. was with like one of my best friends. Right. And even though we're in a room with whatever producer or whatever, it, it felt safe and it felt like where I was meant to be. Like I felt called to those spaces and, you know, we haven't had the, the arms wide open love from the Christian industry for that album, but man, was it, worth making. And I love singing those songs and some of them have ended up on Christian radio, which I'm so thankful for, but it's just, it's part of my, part of the journey now. And I know we've talked briefly about motherhood, but it's, I mean, that, that is something, especially as a female artist to think about like, how is this going to work moving forward? But as you said before, if you were chasing something, you know, it doesn't, 
always, the doors don't always open. Uh, but as soon as I, my husband and I decided to extend our family and while I was pregnant with my son, I mean, doors that I couldn't have opened if I had just clawed away at them, started to open with different relationships and different opportunities. And it's just amazing. Like things always work out the way they're supposed to. And I know that sounds, you know, maybe a little frou-frou, but it, I really believe it. And I now, you know, I do a lot from home. I feel like 2020 definitely hit us all really hard and artists had to figure out what, what to do. A lot of us touring artists that are on the road constantly and, now, you know, I do a lot of recording for various websites. I do some sync music. Um, mm-hmm. I do, yeah, I I just get to work from home a lot, which obviously suits my family situation. And I am still getting a chance to get out on the road a couple weekends a month and, of course, so for the exciting. holiday season. So, yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Just going to take a sec to, <laughs> to process all of that. That is, there's so... There's so much there and there's so much alignment and there's so much, there's a, that, that theme. It's so crazy. Everyone I talk to the moment, it's always a complete truth that the moment you, you recenter and you listen in again, those are the moments where things that you've been dreaming of just begin to organically happen. And it really does that sense of interconnectivity and of, you know, is this faded or it just those moments where you get the call out of the blue and they're like, I've been thinking of you, even hearing you at the beginning of this podcast, be like, I've told the story about you. Like those moments are absolutely crazy. And they just make you uh, believe that maybe there is like some sense in an otherwise completely nonsensical world. Um, But just to, okay. So just to rewind a little bit, because you had various relationships with labels and then you had various relationships with like radio play. And this is a whole aspect of the industry that I haven't, we haven't covered yet on this podcast. So I think especially in 2010s till 2023, what were some examples of just, if you feel comfortable like if you signed a record deal and cause there's like 360 deals for those who know, and the, you know, and there's people, okay, they're just going to pay for the album. And then you, they do a little marketing, this, that there's all these different arrangements. And I guess the question I would have is what kind of arrangement did you have originally? And so you had this crazy success and is it, you know, how did that work financially? And and how did that translate into a living? Because we assume, oh my God, Jen's blowing up in the UK. And I assume that your bank account suddenly like you're driving a Bentley and you, you know, yeah. that, like there's that, no, I know, <laughs> but there's that perception from sure. the public that you're like, oh my God, she, you, you know, you made it. And then the reality of, okay, well, here's, here's what that actually looks like once I pay my producers and once I pay the people and whatever. So it's just like, how, how, how were those original deals structured or just like, you know, what would you suggest? What have you learned? Just talking a little bit about record deals, because I think it's really important. So I have only had one uh, official record deal and that was Mm. my deal with Lauren, actually, like she and her husband opened a, a record label so that we could have this you know, album underneath their label, which is called Youth Be Served. And um, I did have a lot of label meetings. And Jay, who I mentioned earlier, Jay Frank, he really encouraged me to always own my masters, which 
I'm so thankful for now. Um, we did take. What, what would the if you didn't own it? Like, what are the risks if you don't own a master? Well, uh, the control for one. So if I have, you know, if I had a big sync come in for a song that I recorded and I owned 100% of it, I mean, I have to ask no one. It's an easy clearance. It's, you know, I am not giving a percentage away to anyone. It is a lot cleaner on paper when you're, you know, trying to deal with mechanicals and all of those things. Um, But I... He he took me to so many different record labels, and it was always like, if this is right. It was never like a, we want this to happen. It was never, it was always just, you know, they have to be passionate about this or it's not worth it. Because so this may make some people mad, but all a record label is, is some connections and a glorified bank loan. Like, I I really Ooh. believe that. Like, Ooh. it's... But it's true. I, I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers. No, but it's like that's what I want. That's <laughs> no. This is I love that. It's oh, connections and a glorified loan. Uh, yes, that it's people. It's people with money, and you're a product. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my god. So sorry, you're. I mean, <laughs> I love to make the music I want to create, and I feel. I mean, I've been very spoiled that I've gotten a chance to do that at. Be- specifically because the song that happened to catch on was very vulnerable. And so then that was kind of what was expected of me after the fact is to really share my heart and which I love doing and I wouldn't want to do it any other way. Um, But that I feel like any late, like the label deal would have to be perfect. And, you know, also when you're this far along in your career now too, I mean, I'm bringing a catalog if they want to schedule a of like 800 songs, you know? So it's like, I, like the deal would have to be structured. So like how, you know, where are we starting from? Because I've put all of this work and all of this money into my music and like building this company that if I were to sign it, sign part of it or all of it or whatever away, it would really have to make sense for me because right now, I mean, I'm my boss. I get to make decisions on whether I where, what cities I play in, when I play them, when I get to be home with my family, all of those things, which are really important to me. And, Mm. you know, I may not, there's a lot of, I think you kind of come to a, a place where you decide, like, there's a lot of sexy things you can do as an artist that look really good on Instagram and Facebook and all of those things. And I did a lot of those things. And a lot of times I was going in the hole five, $600 and like to have a live band that you like, no, you're not getting paid for the show, but you paid your band, but you played at this venue, which is really hip and cool. Yes. And I am over that for sure. You know, like I just want to play music for people who actually want to listen to it. And I love playing solo. And I say that in front of someone who I think is an incredible pianist and musician, which I am not. I am a hack on the piano. I'll be the first to tell you, you know, like I play enough to write and that's all I've ever really needed to do for what I do. I've always relied on my voice. And that's why going back to, I feel like I, it's so funny that you just never knew this, but like, no, had I not had you as a piano player during my student teaching, like there's no way I would have wow. gotten through that. Like you, because for those who don't, nobody knows besides us, but the choral director that I was learning from, your choral director, he ended up having to leave for three weeks and it was me and a substitute teacher. And he handed Yo, me this was. like seven piece requiem and it's like, they need to know this yeah. when I get back. And I'm like, uh, okay. I'm just a student. I don't know what I'm doing. I was maybe going to teach elementary school, but here we are. So you yeah. are a saving grace. And yeah, it's, I mean, I am sure that you have that same vibe when you step into whatever work you're doing is just like you, 
have a very confident assurance of like who you are. You're excellent <laughs> at music. So yeah, it's. Well, okay. So I want to pause here because I think this is actually like one of the most important things that I can possibly say on a, on this podcast. And I haven't said it directly yet that ever grass is always greener, right? Because here's the thing. I was competing in concerto competitions when I was 11 or 12. I also had a mental breakdown on stage and like mm-hmm. had to step away at the age. Like I had my mid, my quarter life crisis. I had an eighth life crisis at 12 and had to like step away because my teach, my teachers were pushing me too hard. I was very talented, but the thing was that it's really easy to look at someone I think who embodies the aspect of artistry that you wish you did because I find myself way more moved. I'll never forget. Here's this, this story. Um, I was sitting around a campfire uh, with two other counselors of mine. I I was teaching a rock band camp in uh, rural Quebec. We were taking the kids from this rock band camp who were 12 to 17 on tour through other summer camps in Quebec. It was the most fun I've ever, it was the best job I've ever had in my entire life. It was called garage band camp. And I was one of the counselors and, and there was this one other counselor there who was just like, you could tell that he had lived such a profound life and was dealing with so much. And he wasn't, he wasn't like a talent, like a technically proficient musician at all. And he took the guitar and he played, um, heart shaped box by Nirvana, just acoustic alone at a campfire in the middle of nowhere, Quebec. And the amount of, soul and life that came out of him. I looked at that and I kind of had this first inkling of like, wow, I, I can do a lot of stuff, but I could never sit down and do something that's that pure. Mm. And I, I don't think I could say something that came from my heart like that. Uh, and I think, I think I still struggle with this. So it's funny because I'm listening to your story and you've always been motivated by something really profoundly attached to to you that has made a huge impression on you. And like, I spent so much of my life chasing clout. I just wanted to be, I wanted to be the kid who was like, you know, voted, you know, best musician in the world. That was my goal. That was my goal. And it's like, so now I'm trying to deal with like, hmm, I think there's like, I'm having my thirties crisis and being like, wow, you know, COVID really showed me, well, what is important? And I think it's really inspiring to hear your story because you've always, you had an experience that most people aren't supposed to have. I mean, I think, you know, your life had, had you been 10, 11, 12, and that not happened, your relationship to music obviously would have been really profoundly different. For sure. And so I think we're really lucky that you were able to take something so profoundly sad and that some, a child shouldn't experience and turn it into something that heals other people. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that like, it just finds it funny that you're, that you had any sort of like, Oh man, you were really good at piano. And I like, I'm not that good of a musician where I'm sitting here. And I'm like, you do something that I uh, aspire to my God. Like I would love to play one thing in my life that like mo- is just moving like that, and I think I you know I think I'm coming to it, but just but but uh, is grass is always greener? Grass is mm. always greener. That people look at everyone is always like you embody what I don't, but everyone embodies something different in their own way and is you know struggling with their own stuff. 
Um, But I appreciate you bringing that in. You know, you said something too of when, when COVID happened, it was, you know, there were a lot of different things we had to step back and think about. Um, And I think for, there's a common check-in question that I have had maybe since my mid twenties that I'll just stop and kind of think if, if music was taken away completely, like from me, if I couldn't, if tomorrow I woke up and I couldn't sing, like, who am I? And that like, that's such an important thing. I think so many times we get wrapped up in the like, Oh, I want to, you know, get on this radio station or I want this, this airplay. I want the Grammy. I want whatever it is. And like you get there and you're like, okay, now what? It's not, you don't, you can't even stop to celebrate it. Cause you're like, okay, well I reached the thing and that was all I was trying to do. So like, now what do I do? Just reach for the next thing. And I feel like who we're becoming along that path and like really enjoying the, I know it sounds so cheeseball, sounds so Hallmark, but it's who I am. But I feel like that the journey of it all is like so, so fun. If we let it, if we're not so focused on like just grabbing the thing that we want, you know, and I feel like I've had to learn that slowly, but I mean, there's, it's just, it's so fun. And like, not everything has to be like we talked about earlier, like so sexy in the music industry eyes. Like, are you having fun? Are you, you know, getting to do what you love by making, like making a living doing what you love? Then man, you're blessed. Like that's, that's something to like stop and really be grateful for. Yes. Yes. I think sometimes the things that sound hallmarky, and cliche. It's like, why is something cliche? It's cliche because everyone has to come to that truth in some way at some point. It wouldn't be a cliche if it was false. Yeah. It just wouldn't be. And it's just the kind of thing where I think I've definitely started to see this where people can say things like that to me. And I'm like, yeah, sure, but I'm doing my thing. And then eventually I'm like, oh no, there is there's a lot of truth in that. And yeah. it's funny because the other half of this is my guest last week, um, Matthew Johnson Harris. It was the associate director of Parade on Broadway, and is just like an amazing soul who's doing so much in the New York scene, um, and is starting these meetings, uh, is starting his own show where he's bringing in spiritual leaders and artists to try to bridge the gap because mm-hmm. you know that the other half of this that is a weird conversation. Uh, is just like, what is, like, even not in Christian music, like things that are denominationally like, here's the brand, like Jen's Jen's breaking into the Christian art, you know, the the Christian music scene, letting all of the, forgetting all the labels, um, just how a lot of times if you go back through people who have been really influential and people who, who, who are moving in any way, shape, or form, there is a sense of connectedness and there, regardless of religion and how it manifests, there is a, the, you know, that I think we're definitely finding that in the New York scene, the New York scene does not feel spiritual at all to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the New York scene feels like pretty, like it can be pretty bleak. And then there are these pockets of people who you meet who bring, there's some, there's some energy that comes into the room. So I wonder, I don't know that like, have you seen people who don't embody some sort of connectedness or spirituality? Like, you know, have you come across them? Have you worked with them? And and how do you 
how do you bring that into a room successfully without being like preachy, right? Because I think the the, the fear is that um, it could come across. You know, there's a certain there's a certain judgment of like, ooh, country music, ooh, Christian music, especially from people like in the Northeast here. Yeah, right. So it's like, how do you how do you make that accessible and and feel connected and bring that to people without it being like labeled or preachy? Yeah. You know, I think it's so interesting. Genres I've always just not cared a lot about. <laughs> I've, I've tried yeah. to, like, I feel like it's, it's been a blessing and a curse though, because it's constantly like, well, how, how do we market something that we can't name, you know? But honestly, like Christian music or not, like that's, that's what I believe. And that's like what I try to embody. And like those values are just mm-hmm. hopefully in me, you know, and just loving everybody right where they are and seeing them, like seeing the beauty in everyone, I think is so important because everybody has like so much light in them. And I think just trying to to be authentic in whatever space I am in and loving that, loving whoever I'm working with and like listening to their ideas, like at the end of the day, Christian or not, like we all want to feel loved and valued and appreciated. And like every session I walk into, like I know that whoever I'm sitting with, I can learn something from them and they have greatness to offer, you know? So it's Mm. just, I mean, just trying to get to know somebody and like showing that that I care, I guess is if that answers the question at all. It totally does. No, I know it's a tough question that, but that totally does. I mean, I think, I I guess my, the only follow up is like, if you meet someone who's not embodying those things, like how, how do you try to still see that in them? Because there are moments in my career where I think I'm filled with like, there's just like something that takes over where, where it could be, Hey, this person's not adding to the room or you know that, that you can get really judgy. I find myself getting really judgy, even if I'm trying to bring that into the room. And it's like, how, I don't know any tips for what's worked in your life about working with um, people who don't embody that, because that's a big part of the music industry. You just yeah. talking about labels. How do you walk into yeah. a label meeting and do that? It's crazy. I mean, it could, Yeah. It can be frustrating when you feel like you're in a session and it, you know, this person hasn't said anything in two hours and like, they're still getting the same amount of credit. You know, there's those (laughs) feelings that are just there, but I honestly, I don't know. I feel like if you get tied up in like that kind of thing, it's going to bring you down with it. And I've definitely let it like, I'm absolutely flawed in so many ways. And I think like sometimes, sometimes you just got to get through the session. Like sometimes you just got to get through it and like, it's not going to be the best session you've ever had. It's not gonna be the best song you've ever written. And like, that's okay. Like, (laughs) so I think, yeah, just getting through it, trying to stay positive and you know, it's just being as honest while being loving as possible as I feel like how I I get through it. I guess as we kind of like get toward the tail of this, the the question that I have been thinking about a lot and been, and been trying to ask is like, if you could look back now and see and speak to the person you were at, at whatever age, at a younger age, at a, at, you know, in your college age, when, whenever, like what kind of advice or what have you learned that you feel like would have been necessary or helpful to know as you were starting out? It's such a great question. And I have gone back and forth about 
how I actually, what I actually wish I would have known. And part of me said, like, wishes that I would have known nothing because I was like the same, like I wish that I would have just like the same, I wouldn't change a thing because I feel like Mm. each, each naive moment brought me to the next. And like, for example, when I played Jealous of the Angels on BBC Breakfast, I had no idea how big BBC Breakfast was. Thank God, because I would have been scared, you know? Like there's just so many moments that like my naive being was, it was needed in that moment. Uh, I think Maybe the idea of just trust yourself, just trust the voice that's in you, like just reminding myself that like I have something just as you have something that nobody else on earth has that like if you let it be seen, like that's a really beautiful thing. And I think we spend too much time in our, at least for me, I spent too much time in my early years comparing and trying to be like somebody or, oh, they did it that way. So let me try it that way. And just listening to my gut and my heart way more and just not having to do things that look so shiny all the time. But I think, you know, some of those things like help me realize that's not what I want, you know? And I just said, like I said, I, some things, maybe it would have been nice to know a little bit more, but I think, you know, the money that feels wasted on marketing and stuff like that, you learn your lessons. And I think that's a, something that's helpful. I love that answer. I think that, I think that is, a rather unique answer that makes so much sense to me that like sometimes, yeah, maybe sometimes I, you know, I'm out here trying to be like, have some preconceived notion of like, Oh, there are things you should have known. And maybe that is the answer. Sometimes maybe the answer sometimes is like, there is no way to know what you don't know. I mean, I, I, I think for me, the only thing that I would have, yeah, I think I would have loved to have someone who could have seen me, um, and and been like, hey, like it seems like you're really chasing a lot, and like, what are you really feeling? But and, and so I guess that is advice I would give. Like your advice to yourself is feel that does feel like really important advice, even as you're in college and even as you're starting out. Is like, does this vibrate with me? Why am I doing this? What yeah. is motivating me? So I guess I guess the only other last thing is just in terms of in terms of anything about motherhood that, that, that would be where I'd love to leave it because that is what you're experiencing now. Um, is it it just about what that's been like and how you bring that in? Yes. I have a sweet one-year-old baby boy and you know, this is maybe going to sound strange, but it's me being transparent. Um, my husband and I always thought we've been married for almost 13 years and we've always, we always thought we would have kids. Like it was just, we grew up in a small town. Like we love kids. It just seemed, seemed like something we'd, we would do. And then it, when 2020 hit and I was off the road and I was home a lot more, we talked about what would it look like if we didn't, you know, what would, what we're this, you know, we're at a certain age now where our, my t- clock is ticking. So we need to make a decision one way or the other. And we just really weighed the options, prayed through the options. And like, there was something in my heart that said, Oh wow, I will, I have to try, you know? And I actually have a song about it called try. Cause that's what I do. I have things that I'm struggling with and I write a song about it and put it on the internet. That's my life. But, um, <laughs> I just, you know, sometimes I don't, and this is honest, I don't really have an answer. And so I'll sit down at the piano and somehow that answer is in me, but I need it to come out and it'll come out in a lyric. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize that's how I felt about it. But here I am in tears. And uh, 
when, when we decided that was for sure what we wanted, um, I, I remember having this feeling just, and it's going to sound maybe negative, but it, it isn't meant to where I feel like I've, I sacrificed a lot for music. Like I, I, I mean, funds and yes, it's all like investment, but like there are, you know, big family events I missed because I was on tour or because I was in the studio or whatever. And this was just something I was not willing to give up for music. Like it just, I wasn't going to let it have that. And it, it I don't, mm. it sounds strange, but it was also just like very clear to me that like, regardless if I ever sing another note, like I want to experience this. And, um, it didn't happen right away if I'm honest. And I remember I was in the studio with Lauren and, uh, Theron Feimster and it was, a. Uh, a session that was like the whole album that we wrote together, the Christian album was pretty much done and it was supposed to come out Easter 2020. Then we all know what happened in March of 2020. So we pushed pause and it was the last track um, that we decided to add uh, within that year. And it's a song called too grateful. And I remember I was so frustrated because like I had finally made the decision of like, okay, we like, we really want to have a family and it just wasn't happening. And I was in that session. I was kind of silently to myself praying. I didn't share this with them, but like nobody knew we were trying. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of prayed through it. I was like, all right, I'm just going to praise God. Like he already answered this prayer. Like I'm mm. too great. This whole hook of the song is I'm too grateful to stay silent. And so praying all these things during the session, when I recorded the vocals for it, I was about three, four months pregnant, which was really special. No and now way. I go on stage and sing it. And it's, it's just really special to share that story too. But that, that did not answer your question of how I'm navigating motherhood and music. No, but it was beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that was really beautiful. I mean, I think, yeah, if there's anything pertinent, uh, that, that just in terms of how you can, how you've managed to, 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 to balance those two things and, and make them both work. I mean, it sounds like you've been doing stuff from home, but just anything that, yeah. that to, yeah. I think we talked about it briefly before we even started recording, but I think you come to a point in, you know, your career where you just, you have to say no to some things and so that you can say yes to other things like your family. And I have just come to the point where I'm not saying yes to every opportunity. I'm really, you know, thinking through and praying through which opportunities make the most sense for me. My husband is not a musician and works um, a weekday job. Uh, so I'm home with our little one where I'm very grateful. It was a dream of mine to not have to put my child in daycare just because I wanted to stay home with him. My mom stayed home with me. And so I've been able to do that because of our schedule. Uh, I stay home with my son during the week. We do have our niece lives with us, who, which is an in incredible, and she helps out a couple days a week, which is such a blessing. And I get to do some work from home. And then on the weekends, uh, a couple weekends a month right now, I go out on the road, and my husband has my son during the during the uh, weekends, and we've got some great family help when I do need to go out. I have a trip planned in February to go back overseas, um, so it's you know, there's family that steps in to help out, but it's, I don't, you know, I think it, because I love my son so much and I love spending time with him, it would be really easy to be like, well, I'm just going to, you know, find things that only keep me home. But I do want him to also know this, this part of me, you know, that, like mm -hmm. I would love for, I want him to authentically know me in who I am and who I was before he was here. And I think that that's gonna, you know, look different, of course. And I, I do want to stay home more because I do want to be around for big moments. But I think that if I, I didn't tour, I'd be like robbing, you know, myself, my own heart and like my family of who I'm really truly called to be. 
That is so beautiful. I just want to thank you for your honesty and your time. I mean, just, yeah, I, I always knew, it was very clear, we all knew when you showed up at our school, we were like, she's going to be very successful. Like, people are going <laughs> to, so like, it, there was just an energy where we were like, she's probably going to do really great things. Oh, I'm glad um, you thought it, because I didn't at that time. <laughs> no, we all knew, we were just like, whoa, you know, because you get, I mean, you get some subs and you're like, okay, they're people. And then you get some people and they're like, wow, there's so much energy and so much stuff. So, we all responded very well to that, and I'm so glad to see that you're still doing it. Congratulations on your son; it's so wonderful. Thank you. Where, where do you have any upcoming dates that you could that that you're going to plug if anyone's around to see? Man, uh, so I'm about to head over to Canada for a show this week, and then I'll, I have a bunch of Christmas shows in Minnesota. That, but I mean. Fortunately, but also sadly, they're all sold out, which is very uh, exciting. There's seven congrats. shows. I'm doing them with my friends, Sarah Darling and Emily Shackleton, kind of the Nashville writers in the round style. But I know I'll have things popping up uh, in the new year. So I look forward to hopefully getting getting out on the road a little bit more. Fantastic. And I will drop links to your tour schedule and just your bio and all that stuff in the description for this. I just want to thank you so much again. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And I'm so proud of you for all the things you're doing as well. Keep at it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you again to this week's incredible guest, Jen Bostic. You can find links to her tour dates, her music, and so much more in the description for this video. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and share this with friends or others who you think might get something out of it. Because boy, do we have some absolutely phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks. If you would like to watch video episodes of this podcast, they're going to start being available at my YouTube channel. Last week's episode with Matthew Johnson Harris is already available. This one will be available soon. We are so thankful that you're listening and have listened this far. I hope you have a great week. We will see you next week. I'm Dan Garman. Thanks so much.